Welcome to this clinical law briefing. My name is Robert Wheeler. I work in Southampton as a children's surgeon and clinical lawyer and hope this podcast concerning a legal aspect of clinical life will interest you. This recording concerns passing patient information to the police. It is not uncommon to receive a request from the police for patient data. Recently, we admitted a patient who'd fallen downstairs, and it was suggested that his partner had caused the fall. The partner was in police custody, awaiting a court's decision on bail the following day. The patient, at the time of the police inquiry, was intubated and ventilated lacking capacity to decide whether to consent to the disclosure of his clinical details. What should our position be in these circumstances? Sixty years ago, Lord Denning made it clear that there is no general obligation for clinicians to disclose confidential information following a request from the police. Naturally, a constable can always approach a court in the face of our refusal. It would be most unlikely that an NHS trust would refuse to comply with a court order to disclose. The Department of Health suggests that doctors should consider disclosure if, amongst other considerations, the alleged offence is grave and the prevention or detection of crime would be prejudiced or delayed but for prompt disclosure. Clinicians must disclose to the police any information identifying a driver alleged of committing a traffic offence and even in the absence of a police request, their suspicions of a person's involvement in terrorist activities. Less specifically, doctors must disclose to the police the admission of a person wounded by a knife or a gun so that at least the constabulary is made aware of an armed assailant in the neighbourhood. Whether the stabbed or shot person allows subsequent disclosure of their identity rather depends on their capacity at the time. Naturally, if the patient consents to disclosure, no problem occurs. But some victims of assault may choose to remain silent perhaps fearing more grievous injury if they become identified as an informer. The patient who lacks capacity poses a more difficult problem. If it seems likely that they will soon regain the ability to make their own decision, it would be prudent to await that recovery. If there is evidential material that could be lost during the time that elapses, such as clear scars or bruises or footprints, by all means have these images recorded but await the patient's capacitor's consent before handing them to the police. At the other extreme, if the patient is unlikely to recover capacity after an assault, a grave offence may have transpired, making disclosure in the absence of consent more palatable. If there is a simple, stark, binary choice between either respecting a person's confidentiality or protecting them from death or serious harm, most clinicians would likely value life and limb over a notion of confidence. Guidance from the Department of Health suggests that unlawful killing, rape, treason, child abuse could all cross the serious harm threshold. By contrast, theft, fraud and criminal damage would not. The leading case in this area of law is of a Dr Edgedill, and he was a psychiatrist who was instructed by W. Now W had killed five people with extreme violence. W was seeking review of his secure hospital order because, of course, that's where he was detained, and hoped that Dr Edgedall 
would provide a favourable report on his mental health. On the contrary, Dr Eggdor found that W was highly dangerous, apparently fascinated by high explosives, and that the secure hospital staff were oblivious to the threat that W continued to pose. Faced with the unhelpful report, W's solicitors did not pursue the application to the Mental Health Tribunal, but Dr Edgedill felt his report should nevertheless go to the Home Secretary and the Medical Director of the hospital, who, of course, were under this potential risk of this man who was interested in explosives. W disagreed. In subsequent litigation, the Court of Appeal held that this disclosure in the teeth of W's capacitous opposition was justified and in the public interest. The breaching confidentiality was made lawful by the real risk of serious harm to others should W be released. Frustratingly, the paucity of these sort of cases provides us with no further judicial gloss on this clinical dilemma. So what to do with our patient who may have been pushed down the stairs? It seemed possible that he would soon regain capacity, so we declined to disclose his clinical details awaiting events. The police did not seek assistance from a court to insist on the release of the records. This in itself hinted that even with the clinical notes, the police had cause to believe that their case would not stand up in court for other reasons. Accordingly, it reinforced our suspicions that dispensing with our patient's confidentiality was unjustified. The patient regained capacity and promptly refused to cooperate with the police. In turn, faced with a single hostile witness to the events on the stairs, the Crown Prosecution Service did not start court proceedings. It has to be recognised that domestic violence plagues society, and for this victim it must be a constant source of profound anxiety, admixed with intervals of terror, feeling for his life. Any reasonable clinician would wish to break that cycle of violence and oppression for this patient. However, because of our fiduciary duty to maintain confidentiality, this patient will always be able to rely on our hospital as a safe sanctuary, knowing that we will not betray him by turning him into an unwilling informant. We can only hope he will ultimately break free from this violent relationship if he survives it. I hope this was useful, but if you would prefer to read rather than to listen to me, by all means look at the Clinical Law website on the UHS webpage, or type Clinical Law into a search engine.